Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armas. Hola, friends. How are you? First, I want to thank you for your patience with me. I meant to upload this episode last week, but... Last week was a hard week. My father-in-law died unexpectedly, leaving my spouse Taylor and I scrambling and grieving and doing that thing that happens in life sometimes when you're simply just trying to stay afloat. Around the same time, protests erupted in Cuba and it's been a lot to process. Everything happening on my island and in my personal life. And it's strange how things work sometimes, because this episode actually had me thinking about both of those things, my father-in-law and my island. In this episode, I chat with Mariah Humphreys, a Muscogee educator and writer. In this episode, we talk about being Native American, and within that, we talk a whole lot about the land. As I mentioned, this made me think of my father-in-law. One of the most beautiful things Taylor and I have been reflecting on is his love for the land. He lived on a lot of it out in the country and he took care of his land. He raised cattle and he had all sorts of pets like chickens and goats and he had an appreciation for creation, a reciprocal relationship with it. I think folks who live like this are more whole beings. They see and understand things we that live in the city or that are disconnected from the land don't. They see that the land gives back and it's our responsibility as humans to care for all of the things endowed to us by Creator. Taylor and I want this memory of his father to live on in our daughter and in our lives and in our future generations. My conversation with Mariah also reminded me of everything that's happening in Cuba. Of course, I talk a lot about my island and my book, Aulita Faith, particularly about one of the things that stands out to me so much. And that's how deeply connected, how nostalgic I feel about a land I've never lived on. My soul remembers its familiar rhythms and I can almost smell the ocean and feel the breeze of my island. And this might seem odd, but I've learned in scripture and through indigenous and native peoples across the globe that our connection to land runs deep, that the land lives within us. I share this in my conversation with Mariah, but we even see this in Genesis. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed a human from the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life, and the human became a living being. I love that this was all in one moment. From dust came breath. We know that we are dust and to dust we will return and we are made of the dirt and the dirt is our kin. It's no wonder that scripture is riddled with language of land and longing for land. Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my strong hand wither. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. This is a part of Psalm 137, which demonstrates the Israelites' deep yearning for their land during the Babylonian exile. Friends, land and body and land and soul are so deeply intertwined and I'm so thankful for the perspectives of native peoples and indigenous peoples who remind us of this by their very existence. And speaking of land, I want to acknowledge that I am talking to you from the traditional territory of the Cherokee East and the Shawnee peoples. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did and that it also speaks to you. Also, if you haven't pre-ordered Abuelita Faith, I encourage you to do so as pre-orders are so, so important for authors and it's one way you can show your support for my work and even for this podcast. Well, gracias, friends, and welcome to The Protagonistas. Mariah, thank you so much for being with me today. Um, I am just so pumped to 
chat with you and have our listeners hear from you. Um, so first, I always start off with asking uh, my guests to tell me about their spiritual background. And that can mean whatever it means <laughs> when it comes to who you are, your experiences, your identity, um, and also just how that intersects with your ethnic identity. Um, so yeah, tell us about yourself. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be on here with you. And I'm excited that we get to talk about our spiritual background because I don't actually get to talk about that too often, even in Christian spaces. I think it's just a given that we have one and we just we just go on to the topic at hand. So, um, But it's so good to be on here. And before we get started, I just want to recognize that I'm on the ancestral land of the Tonkawa and the Waco, who are part of the Wichita. And uh, they were displaced in Oklahoma in the mid-1800s, but um, they are where I am today, which is in Waco, Texas. And I just think it's important just to take a moment when I'm with others to acknowledge the land and the people who took great care of it. So yes, just wanted to you. give um, a moment of that. But as far as, I mean, it's a really good question, a spiritual background. And it's layered for me. I'm sure it's layered for everybody, but we all feel like our own story is, you know, it's different. Um and in a lot of ways, I'm one of many who will say I was raised in a Christian home, you know, that I think regularly attended church and I, I had the classic camp salvation experience. And so there's a lot of similarities as many other, I guess, American Christians who would be talking to you today would, would share. Um, so there's a lot of those basics growing up in church. But where my lived experience veers from others is I'm also biracial Native American. And so I'm a citizen of the Muskogee Nation, also the Tlaplaco tribal town. So my mom was Native American and my dad is white. And he was a pastor, actually, for most of my adolescent years. And he was a, cap, uh, a pastor of a couple of Native American Christian churches. And that also puts me into a different category of experience because there's not too many of us around that had that sort of experience. Um, but really my life was a bit unique and pretty interesting for me. Um, as much as my story, I, I, and I can't dive a lot, of in, a lot into it today, but mostly living in a Native, um, Native American, non-Native American space, but as a Native American. And so that brings, you know, some of those experiences that you would be familiar with. But um, since we're talking about faith, my church life was a mix of both. It was a mix of non-native and native. Um, when my father was not a pastor, uh, we would attend a majority Baptist church and then mm -hmm. also attend a Native American Baptist church. And when we would visit family, we would visit a Native American Baptist church. And so, you know, we visited them often. And so we attended both. I kind of saw myself growing up in both of those spaces spiritually. So, where it kind of makes it unique for me is I'm not one that was necessarily raised to think of what were these topics that we're talking about today, um, you know, Jesus as only white or mm -hmm. a completely whitewashed Christianity. I don't remember really experiencing that too much. I, it was definitely there. I mean, there were definitely some of those things that were prevalent, but I think it was more balanced because I also had the non-neurocentric, Eurocentric, um, as well as being a, attending a, a Native American churches and just being around Native Americans in general, um, you know, Christians, uh, because there are a lot of us out there. I think that's one of the big misconceptions is, is Christianity with Native Americans? Are there very many? And we have a lot. There are a lot of us out there, strong in number, strong in faith, um, where it is definitely you know, representing our DNA and God, you know, it's definitely having that Christian witness and also being true to who we are. But as an adult, you know, I'm, I'm a 47 year old woman looking back at life, you know, I'm kind of reaching that age where my children are getting older and I'm, I'm looking back at, okay, you know, what, what was I, how was I raised? Um, and I'm just really grateful for having that experience um, because it served me well today. I, I've been able to, um, Really, I've been able to navigate some of those spaces well, I think, because I didn't have to deconstruct completely my faith to really see what I believed. It was really more um, technicalities that I worked through, and it wasn't this, everything's out on the table, and this was wrong, and now I've got to kind of reconstruct that. It was definitely, um, it, it was it was a full spiritual mm -hmm. representation growing up, and I'm, I'm grateful for that, and I do recognize that that is not the norm for many mm -hmm. people, 
but I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to have that experience. One of the things I think that is the most beautiful things for me, um, for being a Christian Native American is, and I, I actually didn't put a finger on this until I attended seminary and studying mm-hmm. the Old Testament. Uh, mainly because I was not an Old Testament person. Old Testament kind of freaked me out and I I tended to stay away from it. (laughs) But, you know, going through that as an adult, um, I loved, I fell in love with the Old Testament. And partially it's because the amazing scholars that I had around me, but I looked at it with this view of being a Native American. And it might've been some of the first times that I had really done that deeply. And so one of the things that really came out to me was this love for creation, for land, for water, for animals. And that is one of the things that for me really makes Native Americans stand out is this deep connection with land and this deep connection with creation. And so as I have grown older and more mature in my faith, that is something that's really been very different for me. It's gone way beyond just the the six days and Hey, that's just part of the lessons that we do. And we move on. It's although I've been in spaces where I'm like, I think I'm connecting with God here. You know, this, this is a beautiful moment where I'm seeing God's creation, but it really has amplified, I think, as I've gotten older and Mm -hmm. what's been nice about that. It has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with my viewpoint on anything else. It's just, I am been able to, connect who I am with who God is. And I've seen how that has had a direct um, impact. And so that's been, that's been really good um, for my, for my spiritual life, oddly enough. And I'm not sure if everybody would say that, but I I definitely have had that. Um, That is probably a very, very condensed version. There are so many details that would make it such a a full hour just on that question alone. But mm-hmm. I think as far as being Native American and being a Christian, um, they can they can go together. And yeah. I think that is often misunderstood or misrepresented. Um, I think people feel like you have to become a Christian and sacrifice who you right. are, um, especially who you are, especially as Um, you know, people of color, I think oftentimes it's expected that we are giving up something in order to become a Christian. And it was, it was something I was very much raised to be, no, you, you are a native American Christian and this is who you are. You know, it's not a dual, it's just all one and it's who God created you to be. And so I think that has been a very condensed way of how my native Americanness has has kind of gone along with my Christianity. Oh, that's so rich. That's so good. Um, thank you for sharing all of that. I wish I could, I wish you could go into those details that you mentioned. <laughs> there are a lot, um, there are a lot of details yeah. that kind of, that really form a lot of, a lot of where I am today, but. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. Um, I will ask some follow-up questions though. Um, first of all, I, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, I was recently chatting with a friend who she's married. She's a Mexican-American and she's married to an African-American man. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that as they raise their daughters, like you know, biracial, um, that one important thing that she talks about is, or, or she, you know, kind of um, makes sure her daughters understand is that they're not half, you know, black and half Mexican. They're full black and full Mexican. Right. Um, and I just love that, you know, just that, that slight little change in, you know, um, because we do, we're so used to that half and half language, but yeah, I think as you were speaking, I kept thinking about how you were, you know, f- whether it's fully Christian or fully native American um, and you were able to embrace both of those really, you know, beautifully, which I think that that is very special. And I think that's very refreshing to hear. uh, Because like you mentioned, that's obviously not the experience full. Um, So yeah, so that's very refreshing to hear. And then also going along those lines, how you talked about, um, you never had to see it as giving up, but it's more of of an embracing more fully. And I think that um, there's such a, a beautiful, thing when it comes to I know that even in my own story. um, Yeah, I grew up, you know, in a 
immigrant Roman Catholic community, um, very, very Cuban. And then I transitioned to evangelicalism. And yeah, it was like, I had to give all of that up. And then I had to kind of come back and say, wait a minute, no, (laughs) you know, why did I, why did I have to, you know, so then it wasn't um, where I had to pick one or the other, but embrace all of it so beautifully. Um, Exactly. Yeah. So I think that that's so um, important. So I would love to hear just a little bit about your experiences um, in Native American churches. You know, how was that experience, you know, being fully Native American and particularly uh, Christian, you know, in that sense? And and how was that? Yeah. How did those two blend together uh, for you? Well, I think a good way to describe it would actually be a bit of what your multi-ethnic church would be like today. So it was not, um, you know, it was English primarily. And because when you're talking about a Native American um, Christian church, you are, unless you're talking about a specific um, tribal area where it is, you know, I I go to Muskogee church, you know, that it's probably going to be full on um, speaking Creek and that's what it's going to be. And you go by those traditions and that is a very different feel. But whenever the churches that the churches that I was part of was more of a multi-ethnic, but in this case, it would be um, (laughs) multi-native, there would be um, multi-tribal. And so you would have several tribal nations represented there because it wasn't just one language that was being spoken. Mm -hmm. So it was predominantly English that was being spoken, but where it was definitely more of a multicultural is because of the um, many tribal nations that were represented, but also we would sing in some of those nations as well. So we would um, sing songs that would be Choctaw, or we would sing in Creek or Navajo or, um, you know, Kiowa, whatever, um, whoever was there to lead, whatever songs we knew, because that's pretty common when you're in a Native American space like Oklahoma and New Mexico, which is where I predominantly grew up, there are several representations there. So you get to know people from different nations. And so you get to know some of their language, just like some of the conversational, just phrases here and there, but you really get to know the songs. Um, We're very much oral tradition. And so you really get to sing along with them. You know, you're singing about your faith, your unified faith, even though you have different languages. And so I think that would probably be the biggest outside of the visual representation. That would be the biggest difference from a majority church or a non-native church. And, but then the teaching, you know, it, there, there was depth to it, but it wasn't a lot of the technical um, uh, references that we would have in more of a formal type service today. Um, It was very relational gospel centered. Absolutely. I mean, Native Americans, you are going to have an invitation at the end of every service (laughs) because that is so important, right? They are definitely a mission minded people and definitely want to make sure that that is, that is shared. Um, But there, it would be references. It's, it's hard to describe because there'd be references that people would kind of catch that were cultural references Mm. to describe, um, uh, Christ or Mm -hmm. to be able to describe the people in the Bible. Um, it was easier to make that connection, even with the old Testament, like I was talking about, it was easier to make that connection with the the tribes that were coming. They were all one, but they were many tribes Mm -hmm. and we're like, we totally get that. Yeah, totally on board. Carry on. Um, and so it was, that's where I really had more of a representation of probably more of a visual ethnicity, uh, appearance of like Jesus. And it was because they talked about, even our Sunday school teachers, they talked about, you know, Jesus and the people around Christ and the people of the Bible, um, looked like us. They were, you know, they were Mm -hmm. Brown like you, they were, um, black like you, because we have in Native Americans, we have a range of right. skin tones, right? And so there was also that that was represented. 
Um, but I think the multicultural part in, the, in a really true sense, um, a multi-language that was there. And so we would sing in English, very, you know, traditional songs and newer songs as well. It was very blended type service because that was very natural. Um, but it was definitely the different languages that came into play would probably be the biggest way that I could describe the difference. But foundationally, theologically, hermeneutically, everything was was very much spot on. And um, but you know, we would we would just have it, people would dress up differently for church. Right. You know, right. you you definitely you know you're wearing your ribbon skirts and everything else. And um, and we love food. I mean, it's mm. it's probably a definitely a BIPOC kind of church because we always <laughs> had food afterwards as well. But you know, so there was there's different sides of that. But the ones that I was exposed to and visited the most um, really just made more of that traditional style of church, just very Native American. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I do love that the that language was such a big focus because that is so important. You know, language shapes right. culture and language, you know, gives people identity, right? The language right. forms identity. And so I do think that that is just so beautiful. Um, and you, you mentioned how you were also in non-native spaces growing right. up as well. And so what was that experience? Like, did, did it feel like, oh, I, you know, okay, I'm now I'm in this space or now I'm in this space or do I have to, or like, how did you sort of navigate being in those two different spaces? Was it difficult for you or was it, you know, what was that like? Yeah, I think there was definitely some code switching going on, you know, for sure. I'm more introverted naturally. Um, I moved around quite a bit when I was younger and that's part of my, that's part of my story as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being an introvert who is in a new space periodically, you, you tend to have a hard time meeting friends. And so you kind of just stay quiet and I'm totally different. Once you get to know me, I am a mess of, you know, personality, but um, when you first know me, you know, especially as a younger girl um, with, in a majority space, there is those insecurities that instantly will come up. You know, right. I would walk in and I would know that I looked different. Um, and then there was the um, the representation, I guess, that you would see mm-hmm. in your materials and right. your Sunday school materials. And, you know, I'm from the age of flannel graphs, you know, <laughs> where we had the things up on the, um, and so everything looked, did not look like me, you know, so there, there was those types of things that made it a little bit difficult, but it was also things that my parents were aware of, you know, because mm-hmm. I did have a white dad and a native American right. mom. And so they really did navigate that corner, uh, that mm-hmm. type of, that type of thing. Well, and, but I would say that that would be, um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not fluent in my language, my original language. And um, it wasn't spoken in my house because my mom wasn't fluent. Mm. So there wasn't the language barrier and there wasn't the, um, the shift there. So I, you know, English is my first language. And so in these spaces um, there was never the, the, the conflict of understanding anything. Um, My culture was never acknowledged in, in those, my um, native being Native American was never acknowledged by any of the leaders that I was around. It was more, it definitely was more like assimilation into um, that majority culture. And, but that's not to say that um, there was the rudeness or the, um, dis- the blatant disrespect that, that many people face. And so um, I'm grateful for that. And I do realize that is not a normal situation or I could have faced that and just not realized it. Right, <laughs> it could right. be suppressed deep down. Who knows? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, there, it definitely was the lack of representation. And, you know, when I go, but, you know, I've, I should say I have a, you know, I've got a full sister who is very um, white presenting. I mean, mm-hmm. she, she has to actually tell people I'm native American because mm-hmm. they see a white um, presenting uh, woman. Right. And so she, she had a different experience, you know, in the majority church we were in, she had, she had that feeling of like, Oh, everyone here looks like me. And mm-hmm. when we would go into a, um, a native space, it's like, I'm the only person that looks like me, me and my dad, mm-hmm. here we are, you know? Yeah. So um, yeah, but that's, that was my experience, but um, there was never, there was never any, um, there's no point like finger pointed, um, mm-hmm. pointing at me. 
uh, every now and then with a couple of songs that are problematic that we sang mm-hmm. back in the 70s and 80s in, in Baptist churches, um, which you may not be aware of because you did not grow up Baptist. So bless you for that. Um, <laughs> but there are definitely some problematic things that kind of came up and, you know, with colors and Jesus loving and, and all these things. And people will understand what I'm talking about if they, if they were there, if you know, you know. Um, and so outside of that kind of uh, that kind of thing, it, it was definitely more code switching, you know, right. um, there was no Native American um, cultural references and there was no right. lingo that you kind of just fall naturally into when you're around your own mm-hmm. people. Um, yeah. And so that was, that's probably the biggest, um, that's probably the biggest difference. Yeah. Um, And I'd love to talk about how you mentioned the love for creation that you've Mm -hmm. been leaning into now. Um, I I was actually thinking about that this morning because my husband bought me a a year subscription to like this meditation app um, just to kind of prepare for (laughs) my future of what's, you know, just (laughs) things, life. Anyway, so he bought me this app um, and it's just obviously a lot of it is just focusing on your breath and, and so much of this stuff. And this morning I was just meditating on that and, and just the beauty, I guess, of focusing on your breath and it's nothing profound and it's nothing, you know, new to hear, you know, we hear this all the time, but, um, but it's been like a spiritual experience for me to kind of just sit there. Um, and I love to, to meditate outside. And so I can hear, you know, the birds and, and I can feel the breeze. Um, and, you know, and I noticed my belly rising and falling. And, and this morning I thought, wait, isn't there a verse about God, like breathing, you know, God's breath, you know, in you or something. So I looked it up and, and I was just so moved by this verse in Genesis 2, 7, it says, um, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into their nostrils. The human came to life. And I thought that was so beautiful and so profound um, because we're not just hearing, you know, it's it's not just so much that God breathes God's breath into us and, and you know, our breath is sacred because that's why I kept mm-hmm. thinking, wow, this breath is sacred and we take this breath right. for granted and we don't think about every single, obviously, every single breath that we take. But then also like the fact that the topsoil and the fertile land has um, a connection to that, right? And so how we are connected to dust, we came to dust, we'll return and, right. and the dust is sacred and the fertile land is sacred. And, and every breath, you know, as I was reflecting on this, like every breath that I'm taking is connecting me to the earth and every breath that I'm taking is connecting me to God and to the divine. Yeah. Um, so I just was like, so moved by that this morning. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, so I love that you uh, mentioned about how you, you know, this love for creation, because that's something that I have been connecting more with, you know, I have ancestors that are Taino from the Caribbean and ancestors, you know, so I I've been thinking so much about this. So if you want to talk a little bit more about um, your really how your relationship to that has developed, um, or even what you received from creation or from the land or just learning about it um, as a young child or how that has developed over the years. Yeah. You know, well, growing up, I actually grew kind of out in the country. I grew up in the country and I was a, I was a country girl. And so I had animals and Mm. um, we didn't necessarily have, you know, a technical farm, but every time I describe my childhood to people, they're like, so you lived on a farm? Like, I guess so. So yeah, you know, so we had horses and, um, you know, I think it's when I described that I was actually had um, like goats that I would be able to like feed. Like, so you were on a farm, like, yes, so yes. probably. Um, but with that, you have like a lot of freedom, you know? And right. so I was a wanderer and, mm-hmm. um, and I had my trusty black lab that was right next to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was kind of my, parents were like, okay, get, make sure she gets back home, you know, so Mm -hmm. go. And um, so I would just kind of go out and I am also, I I love to sing. And so, and of course, any little girl loves to sing, whether we actually can sing or not, you know, that's beside the point. But, um, but I, I remember as a young girl that I would just make up songs, right. Mm -hmm. But it would be making up songs about, um, you know, the grass that I was going through or the pond that I was walking to the toads that I could hear while I was at the pond, you know, whatever it is, those little silly things that, that kids do. And, but I always, I always remember that. And I love just being outside. I I need to clarify me saying, I love being outside does, does not mean I'm a hiker. (laughs) I'm not an outdoorsman, you know, I'm not going to go out and 
do anything with cliffs or, you know, (laughs) that's not what I'm talking about, but I do love being outside and just, um, you know, being in that space. And um, so as I've gotten older, I, you know, self-care before it was called um, Mm self-care. I had found that being outside really was like my time where I was just, I, I tried to do it every day and just, you know, I'm in a suburb now, you know, so I'm a totally different lifestyle, but just be able to sit outside and a breath, right. Life-giving right. every single one of them, literally, quite literally. And, yeah. and just being able to um, just calm myself and being outside. And um, I, you know, whether it's planting flowers or just watering plants or, you know, pulling up weeds, whatever it is, I, I do love that, that physical connection. And mm-hmm. as I've gotten older, I've been able to, see that connection as far as like being like a native American, the responsibility that was kind of on us. And I see I'm challenged by so many, you know, we call them activists today, but so many who are um, always rallying for, you know, land and water um, and animals. And so I've, I've just, I, I love that space and whether I'm at a beach or a mountaintop or in the desert, um, wherever I am at a lake, what have you, um, I just, I sit there and I try to feel it. You know, I try to put my hands in the sand, hands in the water, hands in the dirt. And it's more than like a green thumb because I, I'm not a green thumb per se. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I know how to water things yeah. and keep them, you know, going, but it really is more of a, that's the time that I may audibly pray. I may just internally pray. It's just moments that, um, that I thought was really weird if people described that when I was younger, but now I totally get it. Um, it is just moments that I ponder and, um, I ask God specifically, it's like, what, what am I supposed to be doing right now? You know, in this moment, please tell me something you know, and it, and it's not, I'm confused. I need direction. It's just like, just reveal something to me while I'm here. Um, and I think that is it it just kind of similar thing with, with you when you were reading that passage. Um, I, I read those and I'm like, that, that is what we are part of, you know, we are, you know, we, we do come from this and we will return to this. There is very, you know, it's symbolic, but it's, it's also um, very beautiful if you think yeah. about it and how God works. And, um, and so, you know, so my, my, my culture, you, you care for everything, every part of it, you know, right. and it's, it's just something that I'm still trying to make sure that I stay connected to, but it's just very naturally soothing and mm-hmm. calming and um, spirit renewing. It is not mm-hmm. a, looking for anything else other than recognizing that God's there. And so it's not Mm -hmm. this, you know, weirdness of searching for something spiritual. It is recognizing who is there and who gave it and how I have a role in that. And so I think probably just more maturity as I've, as I've um, gotten older in that recognition and not so much of, trying to do anything, but just be. Yeah, that's so good. I was thinking about this recently about how we, we act like if God or if Jesus is like a spirit that you summon and God is only present, if you say Jesus or, you know, God is only present if something is like inherently Christian, right? Right. Um, Like we have to do like the, you know, and it's like, well, that's not really, you know, what we get in scripture and we can sit and we can be amongst the trees and the birds and we can be you know, sitting on the grass and trust and believe that God is present and God is there. And we don't have to summon the spirit of God in order to, you know, for God to be there. So, yeah. So I think that's, that's so important for folks to really, yeah, just to, to embrace the sacredness of everyday moments, particularly when it comes to creation and water, how water is life and, you know, the oxygen that we breathe from the tree, you know, all of that is life and it's sacred. Um, so that's so good. And I love that you use the word responsibility. I think that, yeah, we do have a responsibility, you know, and I love that that's something inherently with your people and your culture, you know, that there is a deep responsibility and that's, yeah, just a beautiful thing um, that we do also see in the Bible. 
Um, okay, so I have a question about something that you wrote, and most of these oh, okay. are about things that you wrote. So <laughs> um, I'll just be kind of asking you to elaborate on them. So okay. about a year ago, um, an important su Supreme Court decision was made in regard to your people, your tribal nation. Can you talk to us about that decision, what it meant, what it means, and why it was or why it is important? Yeah, so that was the big SCOTUS decision on um, McGirt versus the state of Oklahoma. And it came on July 9th. So we were right up on the year last year. And it, it basically determined with, you know, all the law stuff underneath it, but it basically determined um, that the land throughout much of eastern Oklahoma, uh, reserved for the Muscogee Creek Nation and other tribal nations there since the 19th century remains Native American territory. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what the decision said. So the lands were never um, disestablished by Congress um, or, you know, by the government. And so that is, that's kind of the, the basis of the decision of that, you know, obviously there's a lot of things that are in addition to that, and it's, but it's a, it's a big deal. Yeah. And yeah, and as expected, you know, there's also big, you know, there's a big amount of backlash and, and that just comes as a result from the state. Um, and so the struggle between, you know, Native Americans and government continues, you know, we had that historical cycle and it still exists today in 2021. Um, but yeah, I was with my, I was with my family and we, we had a chance to get away during COVID. And so we went to, um, uh, a beach space where we always go to every, every summer, just to kind of like get away from everything right. and stop as little as possible <laughs> on our <laughs> way there. And so we were, you know, I, I had kept up with the um, proceedings and the sessions and heard everything. And so, you know, July 9th was there and it, ha it actually had to be this day. I think it was the last day that um, decisions were being made. And so I kept refreshing and they're like, mm -hmm. mom, let's go to the beach. I'm like, okay, refresh, refresh, <laughs> refresh. And, you know, it, my heart was pumping. I mean, I'll be very honest and my heart's pumping now when yeah. I start talking about it. Um, you know, my, my stomach was knotted, my throat was kind of all tight. And, and so I refreshed and I was like, okay, they've got a decision, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I saw the name um, justice Neil Gorsuch wrote mm -hmm. the opinion and oddly enough, he's a conservative justice but I put my fist in the air and I yelled or I just said loudly, you know, I don't know which way it was, but my fist was high up and I just said, we won, you know, exclamation mm -hmm. points. And my husband's like, no way. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my smile was huge. And then the tears came and, and they kept coming. I was, mm -hmm. we were talking about, you know, being on the beach or being around, you know, creation. Right. And so I sat there on the beach that day and, just my family, like we're leaving mom alone. You know, she's having, she's having a moment. Cause yeah. I just was just bawling, you know, and I was just sitting there looking out at the ocean and just looking at this mm -hmm. water. And um, it was just a really beautiful moment. And so I wanted to use a quote from, from that day. And so justice Gorsuch wrote on the far end of the trail of tears was a promise forced to leave their ancestral lands in Georgia and Alabama the Creek Nation uh, received assurances that their new lands in the West would be secure forever. Today we, asked, today we are asked whether the land these treaties promise remains on Indian reservation for the purposes of federal criminal law. Because Congress has not said otherwise, we hold the government to its word. Mm. And that was a really, not only because this specific justice um, voted in this way, but it, it was a really big moment um, not only for my tribal nation, but it was a, it was a corporate moment for native right. America. I mean, it really was because it showed that we are still here. And, and mm -hmm. that's a phrase that we use. We are still here. And you right. will see that often, you know, might even be hashtagged mm -hmm. um, because we do have a lot of issues with invisibility. Right. But mm -hmm. so it showed that we came prepared, you know, to fight mm -hmm. for this as well. I mean, listening to the arguments was inspiring for me because mm -hmm. the lawyers and the testimonies on behalf of um, the Muscogee nation were so prepared and mm -hmm. they were just brilliant. And I learned, I was sitting right. there and I was like, I am literally in a history lesson of my own people right now. Wow. Like I, I am learning some things that I did not know. And I was just, you know, I was just soaking it up. 
so it showed that we know our history, you know, it mm-hmm. showed that uh, we know what was taken and we showed that we live on native land. And what it showed is now everybody else knows that too, mm-hmm. you know? So like that was, yeah. that was an emotionally charged moment, not only for me, but for the broader native right. America. Um, because that's, you know, uh, I talk about that connection to land, but that is, we have such a connection to land and right. so many, so many tribal nations, you know, in the South, Southwest, Southeast, and then our, you know, Plains, everybody, we were just, we were moved, you know, we were removed and there was these, these promises of us being able to reestablish some sort of um, culture and, and community there that we had previously. And, um, and then it just, it gets taken away. So mm-hmm. it, it was a really, it was a really big moment. And I, I think I would have felt that way if it was another tribal nation as well. Right. But since it was mine, I, it was, it was just huge. And it made me think about my mom because my mom passed away many years ago, but it's like, gosh, you would love to see this, mm-hmm. you know, my ancestors. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a, a recorded lineage. Um, you know, one mm-hmm. of my, my grandfathers was the second uh, principal chief. And so mm-hmm. I get to see, what he fought for and what he yeah. stood for. And it's like, ah, you know, it was all at this time. And it was, it was just a really, it was a really big moment. It was a big moment for the U S and it was a, but it was a big moment. And um, um, we call it Indian country. So mm-hmm. it was a big moment for us as well. That's beautiful. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad for that. I'm so happy for that. Um, in regard to that, you mentioned um, like just the justice that was sort of served um, and you talk about justice for the constant battle against invisibility as a people, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, yet hyper visualization as a culture. Um, yeah. And I thought that that was so, yeah, like necessary to name. So I don't know if you want to just elaborate a little bit on that and what you felt as you were reflecting on that. You know, I, as a Native American, I'm always fighting for people to recognize that I am still here. You know, mm-hmm. as a people, we are still here. Yeah. You know, we've been removed so much either through um, the education system, you know, we may be referenced, but we're never referenced in the 1900s. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's the references are all in the, the mid or earlier 1800s. And, and then after that, right. it's, they're gone. So, you know, we, we battle against that invisibility, that, um, that reality that native nations are still here. I mean, there's 574 federally recognized tribal nations in the U S alone, you know, and, and there's many more that are constantly going through this cycle of trying to be federally recognized. So we are all over the place. And so we, we battle, um, that invisibility. So when we talk about invisibility, that's what we're talking about. But yet our who we are, like culturally, we're hyper-visualized, you know, right. and our women are hypersexualized. And so we we're not seen as still being here, but yet, mm-hmm. you know, we're represented in, you know, the way of a of a mascot or a team name or right. a costume, um, all of those sorts of things and our school names and all of that. So when we're hyper-visualized, if for some reason they, people cannot make the connection of, you know, we're, we're still around here, you know? Right. And so that's whenever I talk about invisibility and hyper-visualization, that's what I'm talking about is as a people, it's like we no longer exist. And we're, it's definitely changing now. I mean, I think 2020 and 2021 Mm -hmm. has been a year where we are, um, making our presence known and our right. existence known. And not only is it important for us to continue to do that, but, you know, for other people to, to realize it as well, but yeah, we, we are definitely hyper-visualized as a culture um, in, in that appropriation mm-hmm. aspect. And yeah. so that's something that we, we have to battle both, you know, right. because right. neither one is true. You know, right. it, we don't, our culture is not this and we are still here and we're not invisible. And so, yeah, Yeah. that's, it's a constant battle for, for us as a corporate. Yeah. 
You also mentioned justice for the resiliency of a people to adapt and thrive with unfamiliar soil and terrain. And, Mm -hmm. you know, again, it's going back to this idea that land is sacred and land is life. Um, So, yeah, if you want to just kind of elaborate on that line as you were reflecting on that. So, you know, we're from, you know, the Georgia, Alabama area. So I don't know if you've ever been to that space, um, but it looks different than Oklahoma, you know, Mm -hmm. and especially Eastern Oklahoma. And so, you know, you're, you're looking at these people who for however long generation after generation has been in this space, they know the land, they know the weather, they know um, the animals that are there. They, they know that area because it is, it is their area. And all of a sudden you're removed and you're going and even like even how houses and their mm-hmm. towns were established, everything is very purposeful um, around the land because that's what mm-hmm. you have to use. Then all of a sudden you're moved to, you know, a, a totally different region and everything is new. The soil is different. Mm-hmm. Um, what can be grown, mm-hmm. you know, is different. But yet, you know, you have everything established here. And so the terrain is different, you know, whether you run into more rocky terrain or um, hard, you know, harder soil or softer soil, whatever Mm -hmm. the issues are. And so the resiliency of Native Americans who have been removed from their regions Mm -hmm. to be able to go in. And I mean, it's hard for us today to go in and adapt to like a new city, you know, even a new neighborhood, you know, we're like, this is not my corner coffee shop. You know, this right. is now I got to go to a new grocery store and get used to a new layout. What are you talking right. about? You know, yeah. And, yeah. and have new friends and, and everything else. And so, um, you know, that that's whenever I'm talking about the resiliency of people to adapt and thrive um, because they came and they did do that and they were to be able to come and reestablish themselves and um, collect the people and be able to, you know, have, those groups again that have foundations and learn what can be grown and learn what um, livestock is around there and how to, how to use that, you know, just take the, take the basics that, you know, and just using new, new tools, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually thinking about this recently because, you know, I moved to a new city and, and it was like, it was so hard for me this time um, to just, you know, kind of settle and adapt. And, and I just so happened to have listened to a podcast and it was about, you know, ancestral knowledge and it was about ancestral parenting and things like that. And one of the things that this person said was that, you know, our ancestors weren't um, used to just, yeah, moving constantly how we do, you know, we, within our lifetime, we live in several different cities and all, you know, and that um, throughout the history of humanity, obviously, you know, a people would stay in their communities and in their, yeah. And like you, like you mentioned, like they knew their land and they knew their, you know, and how, we don't realize like what a disruption that is even for us now, as you were just mentioning, right. We don't realize that that does a soul thing to us, mm-hmm. you know, that does, um, you know, cause it, it is true of it, like even coming from coming from LA to Nashville and just the weather and the, That's you know, everything. Difference. Yeah. You know, and I'm just like, why has this transition been so <laughs> hard for me? And then I, listen to this. And I'm like, yes, because in my DNA, that's not necessarily the way that quote unquote supposed to be not that it's necessarily a bad thing to move, of course, but, but yeah, so I've just been kind of reflecting on that, how, um, how our souls are connected to the land. And um, yeah, and even more so for when people are removed forcibly, obviously, um, that does, that's a huge disconnection. And that is, um, yeah, a soul shattering disconnection. That's more so than just, oh, I have to relearn how to plant something but that is my soul was ripped from the you know the the space that was mine that that Mm -hmm. formed me so yeah so that's that's really profound and um praise god for that moment um that you had last year with that decision so yeah it was pretty cool i will say yeah Okay, so I have just two more questions about two other things that you wrote. Um, So you said in an article, quote, we are pro-justice up to the point where we have been unjust. For example, when it comes to racial injustice, our money, votes, and our social media posts, um, they tend to confirm that we support the areas we feel cannot implicate us among the guilty. 
Uh, once we enter areas of guilt, we stand by preference, not truth. And I thought that this was such an important observation. Um, so can you elaborate on it and how you've seen it play out and how we can call this out in each other? Yeah, you know, when I, when I wrote that, I was, um, I was thinking of several things and just some of the commonalities that I tend to hear. And usually whenever I write, I try to write on something I'm experiencing. So I'm not trying to give something secondhand. And so in this it just who I am when I, in my conversations and I really try to um, take time to educate people so they can be aware of things. I, I often hear, Hey, Mariah, I totally get that, but you know, this all takes time or, you know, justice is going on. It's happening. It just has to go through the process, you know? And so I, I tend to get those responses, which um, is true. I mean, there's, there's no falsity to it, but whenever I, get those responses, it's usually when we are stepping into a lane where they're a little bit more uncomfortable because they're super on board with one thing I'm saying. And then whenever I start talking about something that might be more something that they could be responsible for, they've seen themselves do, they, the defenses kind of step up and it's like, I mean, it takes time, you know, mm-hmm. um, because if it was urgent for them, they would be all over the place trying to get it to be taken, you right. know, they would take immediate action. So you know, examples like, you know, you talk about slavery, you know, slavery is wrong, you know, and people are like, yes, let's, let's reconcile by, um, you know, paying reparations. I Mm. did not own slaves. I shouldn't have to pay anything, you know, or, um, you know, broken treaties, you know, we're talking about being native American, um, broken treaties were morally wrong. And I, I get that confirmation from people. And, but then they hear, yes, native Americans, let's talk about giving land back. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, can the tribes handle that? You know, can they, can they administer, you know, now that there are, are, you know, non-Native Americans on the land now, what happens to the white people, you know, I'm concerned about them. And so it's something that I read years ago from an author, Sarah Deer, and she's um, actually Muskogee. Um, and she talks about symbolic versus true sorrow. Mm. And I think that correctly describes some of the, some of these examples that I see a lot when I see a lot of support until someone's like, that's actually something that would affect me. And so I'm not sure I agree with that then. So it's very symbolic up until Mm. it comes to the point um, to where they have to take the step of just staying symbolic or they really step into, I'm full on board. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, you know, reparations or uh, however you want to view that, but really right. taking that, that true sorrow, it's way past the performative and it really mm-hmm. takes the actionable steps. And so I, you know, I see that, I see those things a lot. One of the areas, I think it's probably, you know, it's, it's deep, it's a deep example, but I think it's an important example where I see this quite a bit in my personal life because I'm really passionate about the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so we use the acronym MMIW. So we, whenever you see MMIW, it talks about meeting, um, missing and murdered Indigenous women. And there's a lot of stats that, that can be shared. I mean, we're the facing from stalking to violence to murder um, we face those at an astronomical amount, a rate to, uh, compared to everybody else in the U.S. And so that is something that's a real issue. And so, you know, I've got friends and there are people online who, who show support for that. They're like, absolutely, we will wear, wear red on May 5th and we will talk about this and we are here for you. Um, and they, they rally around those voices and fight for those voices. And many of those same people are, you know, they're all in about fighting human trafficking. You know, it makes sense, right? They rally for violence against, you know, women. All of these things are good, you know, and they support companies who take care of women that face this in other countries. It's, you know, all of this stuff is so good. But when I talk about MMIW, I also have to talk about, you know, like uh, VAWA, Violence Against Women's Act and how it's always trying to remove Native American women from that act. 
well, why are they trying to remove Native American women? That's awful. Yes, it's because, you know, part of that act includes being able to deal with people who are non-Native on, on Native spaces. Right. And they're like, oh, yeah, that, that seems like it would be right. Let's do that. And I was, where are these people coming from? You know, so then I had to talk about, you know, man camps. And man mm-hmm. camps are directly tied to, to pipelines. And then it mm-hmm. stops. Yeah. And then it's like, well, that's like a political stance. I'm like that's a that's a humanity stance for me, you right. know. <laughs> so that you know that yeah. is a that's a Native American stance for me, you know. Right. It's land and water, and it's mm-hmm. directly connected to this epidemic that we have and um, against Native American women and girls. And um, that's I think that's probably a deeper example, but that is definitely an example that's of. Good. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yes. What do I need to do? Give me the list to check. And I'm, I'm there. Right. And then it gets to where it's like, Oh, wait, I would have to vote. I would have to vote against my, my political party, or mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure I necessarily stand with that much. You know, I, I don't know if I can stand on that, but I am really for you rallying for these missing and murdered indigenous yeah. women but I can't, I can't extend past this point. And so that's a little bit deeper than, than some of the common things that we hear, but it is something that I face often where it, it's, it's the symbolic versus the right. true sorrow. And so I think, you know, as I wrote that, those were just some of the examples that I was thinking about. Once, once we feel like we could actually have to be responsible or that takes us out of our comfort zone, right. then it, you know, we tend to see people kind of back away. So, yeah, no, that's actually a really, really good example um, of how, yeah, so much is interconnected and yeah, we'll, we'll do a little bit and then we'll stop and then, well, okay. Right. You know, you have to go deeper. You have to, you know, go, go all the way down to the root. And I, I love that it is, you know, the issues that affect Native American people are interconnected. And for, you know, different people groups and for different people, you know, issues are all connected. Um, And so, yeah, that was a really good example. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so I have one last quote, um, which I do think that it has to do uh, a little bit with what you're talking about, because you mentioned sort of like this checklist of things that we can do. So you said Christians who want to become bridge builders between races must embark on a lifelong journey toward reconciliation. You don't get to graduate at the end of the study. You don't get to graduate at the end of a hard conversation with a friend. And this feels so obvious, right? But it's actually pretty revolutionary when you consider our culture and how often we want to, we want easy formulas and steps, um, kind of like what you were just mentioning. Uh, We love the, you know, quote unquote, five stages of grief, because it implies that once we arrive at the final stage, we're done grieving. Um, And obviously, those who grieve know that that's not reality. But we as a culture still embrace this kind of thinking. Um, So what's been your experience with this? And how can we lean into or lead folks into this lifelong journey of bridge building? Yeah, it's, that's, it's a really good question. (laughs) And I feel like I'm still learning how we can, how how we can lead people along. And I, I, you have to kind of tweak it with each person, I I guess that you're talking to, but, you know, lifelong reconciliation, you know, um, sees, uh, sees the journey as the destination almost, you know, it's, it is not, it's not a to, to be, we know mm-hmm. that it's, um, and we may not even be able to see some of these things happen in our lifetime. So it really is a, um, it's, it's the whole process and yeah. it's not necessarily the, the end result that we may see. But, you know, I, I love that you talk about the, the stages of grief because as someone who has gone through the stages of grief, um, you know, for different reasons in my life, there isn't that step mm-hmm. at the end, you know, right. there isn't that I have achieved, I am anti-grief, you know, like right. I am no longer <laughs> going to grieve and uh, that's just not the case. And so it's always okay to revisit a step, you know, right. I may have periods of time where I go back to feeling um, angry in, in my grief um, for whatever reason. And it may just, it may just hit me. It may, there may be something that triggers that. Right. Um, and I may not have to take the next step after that. I go back and like, okay, I'm going to acknowledge that, you know, ha- work through that. And then 
continue on. And it's okay if we go back and, right. and visit steps because this work is a whole, it's a, it's a cycle. There is, there is no two endpoints. It's just this cycle. And it's not this mundane cycle. And it's not this, I can never get anything done cycle. Right. It is just this, we, we go through this. We, we'll revisit these stages, you know, with a national um, tragedy that happens, yeah. you know, we revisit these stages when um, our best friend decides that they no longer feel like they need to support us in racial reconciliation, mm-hmm. you know, or they right. show something, um, they've been coming along and all of a sudden they show something and you're like, I did not know you felt that way, you know, mm-hmm. and that not only takes them to another stage that they, you know, back to a stage right. that they have to work through. It takes me to another one, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't have to stay there, but it, it is a cycle, but it's not the, it, it's not the cycle in a way of a negative, you know, it's just, it's just the work of um, process over product, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, the act of reconciliation is the, is the product, but we're always in that process. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not bad to be in the process. I think it's when we decide to step away mm-hmm. and, you know, I've achieved, I've got my certification and mm-hmm. I'm now done. And, you know, even, you know, even teachers have to go back and get recertified. Right. You know, I, I was a certified um, scuba diver for years. Mm-hmm. Cool. I would not be able to go back and do that right now. You know, <laughs> like I have to go back and kind of revisit some, some yeah. steps because I'm putting myself in danger if I just head out thinking I know what to do. Um, but I know the basics, but then I go back and I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. right. That's right. And I know this. Okay. Now I'm back on board. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of times that's the discouraging part in the work of racial reconciliation or reconciliation in general. It doesn't even have to right. be racially um, motivated. I think that's just when we, um, really struggle is we feel like we have either failed and a lot of times people will bail at that point. Um, or we, we're like, okay, why am I doing this? You know, am I no longer, am I no longer a product of, you know, that I want to be, am I now just deflated? Do I have to just take a step back? And it's just the recognition that no, we are always there. And I, so it's a constant encouragement um, and challenge for some people, I, I will say, it depends on your personality and who I'm talking right. to. I, sometimes I will challenge someone like, Hey, listen, we need you in this work. You know, right. I need you to stay with me here. You know, mm-hmm. you're trying to bail and I need you to stay and yeah. you, you can, I'm going to come in, I'm going to come in with you, you know, and I'm going to lament for a while with you. And, but we are going to exit and we are, and I'm going to, hold your hand or push you through whatever I need to do. Um, But then there are others where I'm just like, you can do this, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on what, depending on what stage they're in, like you, you can do this and you have done it and discomfort's going to come for every single one of us. And I love to throw Mm -hmm. myself under the bus with people. Like, I think that's important to be able to (laughs) freely be able to throw yourself under the bus. So anytime that I have failed in a space and I have had to go back, to stages or go back steps, you know, I've, I've come up here and all of a sudden I realize, wow, I just got dropped down two steps, but I'm not going to stay there, you know? So right. I will use myself as the example with people of, Hey, this is, you can do it. I, I can do it. You can do it. So sometimes it's encouragement and then sometimes it is, you know, yeah. more of the kicking of the rear and saying, no, you are not staying here. You are right. absolutely going to get off of, you know, this pity party of yours and mm-hmm. you have failed or you refusing to work anymore. And mm-hmm. I'm going to challenge you to step into the uncomfortable mm-hmm. and step into the discomfort with me so we can, so we can move forward. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes it is more of, Hey, no, I'm not going to let you do mm-hmm. this. But then other times it is really, you're, you're really lifting somebody up right. and you're saying, Hey, I get this and we're just not going to stay here. I'm going to help you. We're going to sit here for a while. Yeah. Um, but we're also going to, to move forward. Um, I think it was Ra who, who had in um, his lament book talks about 
you know, the joy and the lament Mm -hmm. and how it's not one or the other. Mm -hmm. It's, it's both. And it creates like this fuller experience of faith and this fuller recognition of um, where we are, Mm -hmm. you know, where, you know, where we are with God. And, you know, there are times where we absolutely need to lament and we just kind of need to stop and just sit there for a bit. And then there's the time where it's like, and there's joy in the journey, you know, and mm-hmm. there's, there's this hope and it's not one over the other, but I think there are times where, um, you know, we have to, to recognize that um, we can visit, you know, I can go back to moments where I lament something, but I just can't stay there because there right. is also joy. And there is also areas where I am maybe a couple of steps ahead. So mm-hmm. that's so good. I love how you frame that as journey as the destination. Um, because yeah, I think that that's the only way that we can continue to revisit and not get frustrated or not get, yeah. And be okay with the lament and the joy and um, yes, yeah, see it as a sacred process, all of it. Yes. Um, I know that, you know, I, I think also what plays a role in it is, you know, culture is constantly changing and our society is constantly changing. And there are going to be, even for those of us who are at the forefront of whatever, you know, they're going to be things that were blind spots for us or things that we might miss and oh okay all right I have to kind of start at the beginning in this and I have to sort of retrain myself thinking in this way or you know this is happening um so yeah I mean the journey as you've said is the destination and so I really really love that and I thought that was so good um I mean scholarship changes you know hey exactly we are we're constantly we are constantly Mm -hmm. revisiting Right, right, and it's right. good. It's healthy. Right, exactly. Yeah, and there's a, a humility in that, um, and knowing that you know, if we're committed to constant growth, that um, you know, we'll we'll get there, it, where, yes. whatever that there is in the moment, and then we'll have to get there again, and then we'll keep getting there. So, right, um, yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. This was so good. Thank you for all the beautiful things that you shared and all of your wisdom um, and for being just vulnerable with your experiences and who you are as a person. If you want to let folks know, you know, if there's anything you might want to share about um, anything you're working on or anything you might, anywhere they might want to read some more of your stuff, um, I can provide some links in the show okay. notes. Well, thank you so much for having me. I I have been so excited to able to talk to you and I'm so glad that you spoke back and we had a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was great to be able to to hear from you as well because you always provide these, you know, just nuggets of wisdom and you know these you. these takeaways where you can um, definitely be able to walk away feeling like you have learned as well and not just shared. So thank you for constantly being that for thank for you. those of us who are sitting with you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Protagonistas. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.